Previously on Flying the Line, CEO Dick Ferris and MEC Chair John Ferg sell blue skies to the United Pilots. This podcast is brought to you by the Airline Pilots Association. ALPA supports its pilots through a variety of resources, including free access to air medical doctors for eligible members. The Aviation Medical Advisory Service can answer your aviation-related medical questions free of charge, helping you stay certified and on the flight deck. Visit alpaorg resources for more information and where to call. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, a bridge from the book Flying the Line, Volume 2, by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 15, Blue Skies and MEC Wars, The Origins of the United Strike of 1985, Part 2. The Ferg-Ferris Alliance both reflected and helped to mold a new militancy taking root among the previously dispassionate United Pilot Group. The transformation took place rapidly, a quite surprising about-face for a pilot group whose distinguishing characteristic had previously been an air of cool detachment. In the aftermath of the 1985 strike, with United pilots wearing their militancy on their lapels, displaying a bewildering array of battle stars under Alpha Titacs and pins, they saw themselves as rescuing pilot unionism from its recent slide. But in the early part of Ferg's term as MEC chair, United's pilots stood a chance of going in exactly the opposite direction, perhaps even leaving ALPA entirely. The three-day walkout by the United delegation at the 1980 BOD meeting in Los Angeles raised this possibility. It was the final factor in the coming of blue skies. The United contingent's walkout in Los Angeles both outraged and worried other BOD members. The United pilot group was beginning to exhibit the same kind of long-term disaffection that characterized the American Airlines pilots in the early 1960s. Was John Ferg bidding to become the next Gene Seal, the American MEC chair whose poisonous relationship with then-ALPA president Clarence Sayin lay at the root of that group's secession from ALPA? The historical parallels were ominous. In the early 1960s, the presumed cause of the American group's disaffection was ALPA's crew complement policy. If a dedicated leadership group at United was inclined to exploit this growing disaffection, things could get disastrously out of hand, much as they did at American in 1963, or so J.J. O'Donnell thought. After much wrangling, O'Donnell secured Ferg's permission to address a regular MEC meeting in Chicago in early 1980. Reflecting the United Pilots' growing dissatisfaction with ALPA, Ferg threatened to lead a restructuring of ALPA that would reduce the national organization to relative impotence. Such talk had been a staple at United grousing sessions for years. But in 1980, O'Donnell feared words might give way to action. How genuine was United's threat to secede from ALPA? The mere possibility of such a breach brought O'Donnell scurrying to Chicago to head it off. When O'Donnell met with the full United MEC the next day, the anti-Ferg minority rebuked him for not allowing O'Donnell to speak the previous day and moved that he be put on immediately at the beginning of the 9 a.m. session. 
This motion provoked a heated debate, during which O'Donnell had to patiently tolerate a long rant from Ferg on crew compliment, among other things. Because of what O'Donnell considered the dire threat of secession, he felt he had no choice but to quietly take these attacks and endure Ferg's humiliating treatment. Once O'Donnell got the podium, he controlled his anger, acknowledging the advantages of a union and declaring that the strength of numbers outweighed any temporary gains that might come from independence. Meanwhile, deregulation, in its first full year of operation, was causing small new entrant airlines to spring up like dandelions after a rain. What did the United Pilot Group have in common with these new groups? Although many were becoming affiliated with ALPA, their airlines competed disastrously with the established carriers, with wages and working conditions that had a depressive effect. O'Donnell countered Ferg's argument by citing the necessity of using ALPA's financial resources to sustain and organize the pilot groups of these new entrant airlines. Logically, if United was to benefit from deregulation, as the Ferg-Ferris alliance vowed it would, new entrant carriers would be inevitable. Organizing these new entrant pilot groups was the obvious way to safeguard existing contracts by bringing everybody else up to the major carrier's level. O'Donnell's promise to meet regularly with the United MEC diffused the secession issue. As we have seen, the crew complement issue finally came to a resolution through Operation USA and the Presidential Emergency Board that followed it. But in the months leading up to Operation USA, the United Pilot Group was arguably becoming the most militant in ALPA, with crew complement as the principal cause. Certainly, John Ferg deserves some credit for this transformation of the United Pilot Group. By repeatedly stressing that the third crew member meant jobs, talking about solidarity, and urging ALPA to act like a real labor union, Ferg recharged the United Pilot Group's militancy. The walkout that this militancy precipitated at the 1980 BOD meeting in Los Angeles profoundly startled everybody. But J.J. O'Donnell could see it coming as the various committees shaped up. At BOD meetings, committees composed of delegates do the basic work and then make recommendations back to the general session. While that body theoretically has the last word, these committees do the groundwork. Each committee usually has a core group of pilots with previous experience in ALPA affairs who are able to lead their less knowledgeable colleagues. Typically, at that time, more than half the nearly 300 delegates at each BOD meeting were attending for the first time. Each delegate gets assigned to at least one BOD committee, but an old policy allows voluntary switches, which ALPA's president cannot control. As O'Donnell saw the list of names switching to the Critical Crew Complement Committee at the 1980 BOD convention, he sensed trouble. When the committee addressing Crew Complement presented a report that dissatisfied the United Contingent, they walked out en masse, checking out of the hotel. For three days, nobody knew where the United pilots went or whether they would return. O'Donnell and ALPA attorney Henry Weiss were visibly upset, preoccupied to the point of distraction over the walkout. For Weiss, the episode seemed like an ugly replay of the American Airlines split 17 years earlier. For the next three days, Weiss and O'Donnell scoured Los Angeles, looking for the United Delegates without success. 
only Rick Dubinsky remained at the BOD Hotel to act as United's representative. Dubinsky would eventually become well-known in ALPA because of his leadership during the 1985 strike, but in 1980, he was just a first officer representative from Cleveland. ALPA insiders understood very well that by the United pilot's choice of Dubinsky, who carried himself like a middleweight boxer, to represent them, they were sending an unsettling message. But did that mean secession was imminent? Dubinsky knew where the United Pilot Group had gone and that they had not left Los Angeles. With the crisis growing steadily worse, Weiss finally met with Dubinsky after several fruitless cab rides to various hotels where Don Schiatos, Alpa's communications director, thought the United Pilots might be. The exact terms of the deal worked out between O'Donnell and Ferg remain something of a mystery, but its general outlines are clear. The United Pilots would return symbolically to the BOD meeting by sending three delegates, a captain, a first officer, and a second officer representative, each bearing proxies for their group. But the rest would stay away to dramatize their unhappiness. As for the coming concessionary Blue Skies contract, Ferg was no longer going to allow ALPA policy to hinder him in making a deal with United. J.J. O'Donnell would have to accept Blue Skies and agree to whatever deal Ferg worked out with Ferris. In so doing, O'Donnell paid a huge price politically, for to say that the average delegate attending the BOD meeting was outraged at the United Pilot Group is an understatement. O'Donnell, worried about the consequences of United's disaffection, saw himself as doing what his job required. He also felt a genuine sympathy for United's pilots, which transcended the mere political fact that they had supported him before and would do so again during the 1982 presidential election. So from the end of the October 1980 BOD meeting, Ferg had control of the situation. He would cut his deal with Ferris, confident that O'Donnell could do nothing to stop him. While the negotiations that would eventually result in Blue Skies progressed, the outcome of the third crew member controversy went badly from the United Pilots' perspective, thus strengthening Ferg's hand even further. The cycle of LEC elections brought several more Ferg supporters to the MEC in early 1981, thus placing him in a commanding position. Roger Hall, chair of United's negotiating committee, received his marching orders from the MEC shortly after the 1980 BOD meeting. By early 1981, reflecting Ferg's successful politicking at the LEC level, the negotiating committee was composed entirely of new members, something of a departure for United's pilots, who had a history of continuity on this important committee. But the new committee's inexperience was mitigated somewhat by the fact that Hal Stepensky, an ALPA staff negotiator with 20 years of service would assist them. The technical details of Blue Skies would be worked out quickly once Hall and Ferg got their signals straight. Although Hall had been Ferg's personal choice to conduct the negotiations and had resigned from the MEC to take the committee chair post, he was nevertheless troubled by Dick Ferris's influence over Ferg and the process that surrounded the coming of Blue Skies. For Hall, Ferris's proposals had obvious personal appeal. At the time, he was still only a B-727 first officer, after 17 years with United. 
Hall knew that Ferris's proposal extended the scope of contract negotiations beyond the envelope Alpa had previously found acceptable, so he referred the matter to the MEC itself. Ferris proposed an ongoing type of contract he said would address what United needed to expand. While the agreement would have an amendable date, negotiations would continue on a regular basis, with constant meetings to solve problems that might arise. Ferris's proposal made a certain sense, for there were so many uncertainties in what he eventually might need to grow the airline that, until the pilots actually started living with blue skies, predicting its effect was nearly impossible. In return for substantial work rule concessions, which added about two days of flying per month for each pilot, Blue Skies called for a series of 6% pay raises sprinkled at intervals throughout the life of the contract, payable moving forward as flat monthly salaries. The actual dollar amount of concessions in Blue Skies is difficult to assess, but best estimates measured them at about 15%. Things moved rapidly. By March 1981, Roger Hall's negotiating committee had worked out the basic agreement. In August, the MEC gave its approval to Blue Skies, following an 83% favorable ratification vote by the United membership at large. Negotiations on certain aspects of pension funding would drag on into 1982, but by September 1981, Blue Skies was an established fact. Everyone was pleased. Dick Ferris publicly declared a new partnership between United and its pilots. Peace, harmony, and satisfaction reigned. The millennium seemed to have arrived. What could that meager 17% of United pilots have been thinking when they voted no on blue skies? Everyone was about to find out. Next time on Flying the Line, the United Pilots Blue Skies Honeymoon is cut short with the introduction of a two-tiered wage scale. Thank you for listening. This has been Chapter 15, Part 2 of Flying the Line 2 by George E. Hopkins, Copyright 2000. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or find us on all major podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association International. Production copyright ALPA 2024, all rights reserved.